Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Hi, just a reminder, we're doing these talks live on Zoom every week. So if you'd like to be part of it as it goes on, and there are questions and answers at the end, you can ask a question if you like. Uh, we'd love to have you and become part of the community. Just subscribe at Torah on iTunes. Okay, .com. I'm glad you're here. Um, lots of uh, sort of cool stuff to discuss today. I, I want to. I've been reading this uh, book. It's a um, it's a Jewish history book, and there's some um, some great stories that that I want to share with you. Um, so it's the the book is called um, From Lublin to Shanghai. And it's by uh, David uh, Mandelbaum, and it's it's a just a, a telling of, of of one of these amazing amazing chapters um, in Jewish history, which was during World War II. Uh, a lot of um, a lot of the yeshiva, the, the the Mir Yeshiva, one of the the, the great Torah institutions in the world, alongside. Um, other uh, other uh, yeshivas as well, um, including Chabad and um, yeshivas Chachmei Lublin, um, the, the the students and and some of the rebbe's, including um, Rabbi uh, Chaim Shmuel Levitz and the and the Amshin of a rebbe, were able to travel um, from from Vilna to Moscow to to the edge 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 of Russia. Um, I don't. I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to pronounce it right. Vladivostok, and then they were able to go to Kobe, Japan, and then to Shanghai, China, where they were able to wait out the the war and um, and 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 a lot of the, the the legacy of who those people who got saved was a tremendous impact on Torah, especially um, in the United States. A lot of that community came to the United States afterwards and and ran all the you know the emerging Torah institutions in America so so this this journey is is filled with miracles and I, I just saw yesterday that uh, it's funny I'm this book is out for a couple of years already but but uh, in this week's Jewish journal in, in Los Angeles my, my wife was looking at it and 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 we just noticed there just happens to be an article about the, the this this week and and talking about how PBS is doing a documentary on it that's going to be airing next month. So so there's all sorts of miracles that took place. And and I I really yeah, I see Jill saying that your your that your husband's mom and 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 dad uh were part of that. Yeah. You know, I was just in shul yesterday. There are a lot of people who are part of this. I was just in shul yesterday, and so you know we're meeting in someone's backyard because of the um, uh, because of Corona and everything like that. And I just mentioned to someone that that I was reading this book, and someone overheard me and said his father and grandfather were in Shanghai. And and so you, you know if you if you if you ask around, you'll probably be able to meet someone who went through it, or at least the children um, of someone who went through it. Anyway, so I just want to, uh, I'm still in the middle of the book, 
And by the way, there, there are many books on this subject. There are many, there are many books on it. It's not, it's not just this one. This one is chronicling the, the journey from the point of view of um, Yeshiva's Hachme Lublin. And the reason why um, I'm, I sort of found this book and, and was drawn to this book is because the, 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 the Rebbe that we've been learning from together, um, whose book, God willing, a lot of us uh, uh, are, are sponsoring and, and getting back into print, he was the head of Yeshiva's Chachmei Lublin. So it was a lot of his students who, who went through this as well. So that, that's how I came across this book. And actually, the author of this book is the one who's putting together um, the Eretz Vi, which is the book that we're, we're, we're God willing, uh, will be out, um, you know, not, not so long from now. Okay. So, so one of the, the great people who is, it, who is in Vilna. So let me just ex- explain a note about Vilna. You see, by the way, you want to hear something crazy? Listen to this. Today, not, not yesterday, not tomorrow, today is the day on the Jewish calendar that World War II started. Today. Today. Um, the, the 17th day of Elul. And it was on a Friday. And it was right before Parshas Ki Tavo, which we read on Shabbos. And it's actually kind of chilling because it includes curses. It's one of the two places where the sort of conglomeration of curses in the Torah is located. So the idea that World War II started right right before this Parsha is 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 very intense. And um anyway, um today is today is that day. That that Germany invaded Poland, um, and you know it. You know there was mayhem and destruction and mass murder, as you all know. And um, within the Jewish community, within the Torah community, um, there was a message that was put out that all the yeshiva students should do whatever they can to get to Vilna. And so they came from all over and it was, you know, it was very hard to travel during these times, you know, like every step you took, you were taking your life in your hands. And, and a lot of, in order to get to Vilna, you had to get across what's called the Bug River, B-U-G, Bug. Um, and a lot of people drowned getting across, but, but people made it across. And while they were in Vilna, it, you know, the conditions were very, very hard, but they were... They were at least a, they were at least better than they were in Poland. Okay, Vilna was in Lithuania, and Lithuania was a separate country. Okay, it was it was about to be taken over by the Soviet Union, but there was just like this little period there where it was a safe haven, and and a lot of the yeshivas continued to operate, you know, under great deprivation and and, and hardship and all the rest. But there were a lot of rebbe's there and things like that. So one of the rebbe's that was there in Vilna at this time, this is 1940, was uh, the Mojitsa Rebbe. Now, the Mojitsa Rebbe, you know, it was, is, 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 is very famous for being one of the great composers, music composers of the Jewish people, in addition to being a great Rebbe. And a lot of the melodies um, that, that you know of were, were composed by the Mojitsa Rebbe. And, you know, Reb Shlomo Karlbach, you know, you know, looked up to the Moshe Rebbe tremendously, you know, like, across the board is, 
It's really one of the one of, one of the acknowledged geniuses of Jewish music and, and and Torah as well, by the way. Anyway, so so the Moshe Tzarebi was in Vilna at this time, and 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 people would gather toward him for his tishes and things like that, and he would sing his compositions. And people were so happy. Like, it, it's like, you know, you can imagine what it would be like to be, you don't know what's happening with your family. You don't know if they're alive or dead. Or maybe you do know that they're dead. And you're all alone and everything like this. And and there's the Moshe Tzarebi singing like inspired, beautiful new music, right? So so he gave a lot of a lot of strength to the to the refugees at that point. Now, at a certain now you know, everyone was trying to figure out what's the plan. How are we? How are we going to live? How are we? How, we got to get out of here. You know, it's like the Soviets invaded Vilna, and then when the Soviets invaded Vilna, Vilna became like like a very dangerous place, and especially for Jews, like very dangerous to Jews. So, so the idea is, if you wanted to get out, well, you had to get a visa. Well, who are you going to get a visa from? The Russians. But if you apply for a visa from the Russians, they consider you to be a traitor, and then they'll send you to Siberia or they'll kill you or imprison you. So the idea of trying to get a visa to get out from the Russians was like considered to be like, you know, signing your own death warrant. Like, why would you ask? And by the way, that that mentality in terms of trying to get a visa from the Russians continued well into almost the present time. Like the whole Soviet refusenik thing was that anyone, you know, we're talking about the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, anyone who applied for an exit visa from Russia to go to Israel was considered a traitor and was put into solitary confinement. And of course, the most famous example of this is Natan Sharansky. And by the way, he's just published a book just now um, talking about what life lessons being in solitary confinement in the Soviet Union for trying to get to Israel, for asking for a visa, you know, how these lessons continue to endure for him. And, um, you know, an amazing Jewish hero in just today and, and, and a great account. So you can look for that book. Um, but anyway, it, it was the same case in Vilna. Well, the Moshe Tzarebi decides that he's going to ask for a visa to leave Vilna, you know, to try to save his and his family's life from the Russians. And everyone's like, are you crazy? Don't, don't do it. Don't, don't do it. And, and they couldn't convince him. And they were mourning. Like the day that he went into the Russian office, they were mourning for him. Okay. Now I'm going to read you from this account because I, they, they just put it so beautiful, beautifully. The Rebbe was called to meet with the appointed official. His family and the people close to him began to mourn in anticipation of the meeting, fearing that, the, that he would never return. But the Rebbe walked in with an upright posture and absolute confidence. The official responsible, the Soviet official responsible for exit permits, posed a direct question to the Rebbe. Quote, you are now in the one place in the world where all of the values of justice and equality have been realized. Why do you want to leave here? Listen to his answer. Quote, 
That is precisely the reason, the Rebbe answered confidently. I wish to disseminate to the wider world your values, which are just and correct, and to try to influence all those who can accept these values. Can you imagine? The officials were greatly surprised by the Rebbe's answer, and the Rebbe and his family received exit permits. Okay, I'm going to read that exchange back to you again. I mean, it's like miraculous. You are now in the one place in the world where all the values of justice and equality have been realized. Why do you want to leave here? That is precisely the reason, the Rebbe answered confidently. I wish to disseminate to the wider world your values, which are just and correct, and to try to influence all those who can accept these values. Now listen to this. The story doesn't end there. Do you know where he, once he gets his visa, do you know where he ends up? And by the way, the people of Vilna mourned his leaving. They were like, you know, he, he gave them so much strength and they, they sang and they danced with him on the way to the train and everything like that. Anyway, listen to this. He gets off a ship in San Francisco. That's where, that's where he, he arrives, okay? Of all places in the world, San Francisco, okay? <clears throat> now, now, I'm going to read you this account again. You see just how, how, how much he understood. You see a, a great mind at work under extremely difficult circumstances. And, and look at this next part of the story. So this, was, this I'm reading from an excerpt from the book from David Frankel that's included in this book, who is very close to the Chazanish, it says. The Mojitzer Rebbe left Vilna after it was already under Russian control following the Soviet invasion. When he arrived in San Francisco and it became known that a refugee from Vilna had come, remember this is right in the middle of World War II, okay? Information was very hard to come by. That a refugee from Vilna had come from under the Soviet occupation, he was swarmed by numerous reporters and media representatives who wanted to hear a live report of what was happening behind the battle lines in the lion's den. The Mojitzer Rebbe, who understood that every word he would say would be reported in the press, deliberated carefully in his mind what message he could convey that would be beneficial. He told the reporters that the Jews in Vilna were living well and that they had food to eat and clothes to wear. He was very careful not to say anything negative against the Russians who were in control there, so as not to anger them. It was a sort of a political message to the leader of Russia conveyed through the newspapers. The following day, the American media reported that a prominent rabbi who had arrived from Vilna, and according to him, the Jews were living well under the Soviet occupation, eating and drinking and not lacking for anything. The news had an, a profound impact across America, and the Russian embassy in the United States immediately transmitted, transmitted this information to the Kremlin, reporting on the positive repercussions vis-a-vis -vis Russia of this in the news. Hearing about this, the Russian leader, Joseph Stalin, let's just pause for a moment, Joseph Stalin, who killed more people than Hitler, 
Joseph Stalin was extremely pleased. He made the simple calculation that it was worthwhile to change the policy in Vilna, and he gave instructions to ease the repression. Can you imagine? And because, because the Moshe Tzarebi was able to get his exit visa, because he had the wisdom to say something positive, it gets all the way back to Stalin. Stalin then sends orders to Vilna to lighten up on the Jews there. And they say because of that, it loosened things up so that all of these yeshiva students, thousands of people, were able to leave Vilna and get to Shanghai. So, so this is amazing. This is amazing. And anyway, I want to tell you another story. I'll tell you another story from this book. Um, it, it's 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 a little bit complicated. Um. But but basically, th- there was, anyway, without going through all the details, the bottom line was the, the idea that maybe they could get these exit visas. And by the way, the, the whole story is filled with miracles and, and wild hashkach pratis, divine providence, how they were able to do it and the, and the fact that it even worked at all and that the and that the Russians were willing to help them, which didn't make any sense and went absolutely 100% against everyone's experience up until that point. But, but it was very controversial in Vilna whether to pursue this or not. And very great people, some of the greatest people in the, among the Jewish people in the world who were there at the time, opposed this plan. Who was the great champion of this plan? The Umshin of Rebbe. Okay? So the, the Umshin of Rebbe was, was, you know, it's, it's, it's like, who was the, you know, it's, it's sometimes, it, like, when we talk about the, um, the Piasesna Rebbe, the, the Esh Kodesh, sometimes he's referred to as the Rebbe of the Warsaw Ghetto. Like, not sometimes, very often. So in other words, who was the central figure, you know, spiritual figure among all the great people there who like really, like people look to. And and I guess that was the, you know, the Piasesna Rebbe, you know. Um, so it just kind of comes to mind because in reading this account, who was the Rebbe of Vilna? Remember, because you've got like refugees coming from all over. What Hasidic master like, kind of like was looked to as as sort of like, the Rebbe of Vilna at this time? And the answer is the Umshin of a Rebbe. And the, 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 um, and, 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 and the students of Yeshiva's Hachme Lublin, right? Which was, you know, the, the greatest Yeshiva in the world. Like, to, to be eligible to get into Hachme Lublin, you had to have 50, 50 pages of Gomorrah memorized. That's to apply. That's to apply. Okay, 
So all of the students of Yeshiva's Hachmei Lublin gravitated toward the Amshinaber. Now, I, there is, I just have to pause for another aside because an amazing kind of like just, just historical note. If you want to know like Yeshiva's Hachmei Lublin, right? That's where Rabbi Meir Shapiro founded it. And he's the creator, of course, of the Daf Yomi. And then, of course, um, Rav Firmer took over after uh, um, Rabbi Shapiro of So, so the Nazis, the Nazis, you know, the the the, the great um, the great cudgel, the great weapon that that anti Semites use um, in the world uh, even today is this forgery, this like crazy, like made up document by an anti-Semitic Russian monk called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Sometimes it's just called the Protocols. Other times it's just called the Elders of Zion. Whatever it is, is this completely made up garbage about the secret notes from the secret meetings that the, you know, the leaders of the Jewish people who are bent on the destruction of the world are... You know, this is their secret meeting notes, okay? We, we caught them, we caught them. And by the way, who who was one of the, this was done in around 1900, maybe a little bit before, but that's that's when they were, um, that's when when this forgery was sort of foist upon the world. And, 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 and very, to this day, very, very popular, uh, as, especially in, 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 in the Arab lands, unfortunately. The, the poison has been spread to them. Um, but you should know just a couple of things. One is, one of the greatest popularizers of these protocols was Henry Ford, who is of Ford Motors, the inventor of Ford Motors. The, the Ford, Ford, like this, what's more of a household word than a Ford? And and he translated it into something like 16 different language and for free, out of his own pocket, printed hundreds of thousands of copies and distributed them around the world. And you ready for this? Henry Ford was one of Hitler's heroes. And Hitler had a picture of him in his office. Can you imagine? Anyway, so all the crazy anti-Semite conspiracy theorists wanted to know, where do the elders meet? Right? They're having the secret meetings. Where do they meet? And the Nazis said, we know where they meet. They meet in Yeshiva's Hachme Lublin. So if you want to know how great Yeshiva's Hachmei Lublin was. I mean, it's kind of a backhand compliment. <laughs> but, but the Nazis certainly had great respect for that place. Anyway, it's just a tribute. Not that he needs our tributes, but it's just another tribute to the umption of a Rebbe. That the that the the students of Yeshiva's Hachmei Lublin made him their rebbe, and 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 there's a note in here 
that that when the when the Amshanavar and by the way you can see the Kurna Amshanavar, he's in Bayat Vagan in, 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 in Israel. And um, I had the privilege of being by the, the Amshanavar Rebbe. Um, and I you know it's I would recommend everyone do whatever you can to go. He's he's one of the pillars of the world. One of the pillars of the world. This was his grandfather that we're talking about. Okay, but um, anyway, it says when the Umshin of a Rebbe was trying to get to Vilna, he was traveling with some people, and you know you can't even imagine what is it to try to escape during World War Two while th- these soldiers are wandering around the roads and patrolling the roads, and how how are you going to get through? So it says in this book that every once in a while they would reach a crossroad and they just, they didn't know which way to go. And the umption of a Rebbe would get out of, get out and he would stand at the crossroad and he would daven and then he would say, he would just point and he would say, this way! And it, the people report that they felt like they were watching like divine, like divine communication happening in front of them. So this same Amshinavar Rebbe said, endorsed and said, this is the way to go. We, we're going to do this fantastical plan of going from Vilna to Moscow to the edge of Russia to Kobe, Japan, to Shanghai, China. And it's it's interesting because, you know, the heads of the Mir Yeshiva agreed. Um, and so they, they went together. Now, here's the part that I want to read you. So it says, these are the words from Rabbi Yechiel Ben Sion Fishoff relates. From the vantage point of today, we can describe the plan to seek an exit visa from the USSR to cross its territory en route to Japan as fantastic, like placing one's head in a lion's den. Surely the Soviets would arrest us and send us to Siberia. How could we be so foolish to ignore the almost certain danger? Later we saw clearly that only those who dared to do this were saved. Now I'm going to read you a footnote here because... Um, it's just a peek inside of what was going on, okay? Some of the yeshiva students were afraid to approach the immigration offices to request permits. Sadly, these students were killed al-Kiddush Hashem, meaning to say that those who didn't go on this, on this trip or risk going, risk applying for this visa from the Soviets, died. Okay. One of these was an exceptional student of the Mir Yeshiva named Rabbi Yona Karpilov. Born in Minsk, Russia, Rabbi Yona was a rare genius. Now, do you understand? All these people were geniuses. So they're saying he was a rare genius. So that means he was a genius among the geniuses, on top of the geniuses. What, what a brain this person must have had. Right? 
And he told all his friends that he was familiar with the wily, that means crafty, nature of the Soviet authorities. He thought that the Russians would allow the yeshiva students to leave Vilna and travel through Russia in an organized fashion, but at the end of the journey in Vladivostok, the Russians would arrest them all and exile them to Siberia or murder them. He therefore thought it was better to hide in groups until the danger passed. Okay, so a very, very sad, very, very sad story, but it, it shows you, like, it, to me, just it, it puts me, like, in the middle of the yeshiva, like, should we go, should we not go? And you've got one of the top, top minds, super brilliant, and he's trying to be a step ahead, trying to save everybody, right? And he's saying it's, don't go, don't go, don't do it. All right. Now I'm going to read you what Rabbi Chaim Shmuel Levitz says. Okay, Rabbi Chaim Shmuel Levitz was the Rosh Yeshiva of the Mir Yeshiva, okay? At the end, the Yeshiva was saved, and the student was killed together with the other martyrs. Rabbi Chaim asked, Why was he not saved? Because he remained alone, and was not part of the yeshiva. That's what he said. So, we have to unpack these words. Why was he not saved? Because he remained alone and was not part of the yeshiva. So I'm going to do my best to try to explain what those words mean. Um... He means, I think, it should be obvious, he means more than, because he went there instead of going there. It, it means much more than that, okay? So so let's try to understand it. Um, so I heard, I heard this story, actually, when I was a student at Harvard, I heard this story, and then I was surprised to hear it again many years later from Rabbi Frand, um, who told it in the context of you know, very important advice for us approaching Rosh Hashanah. So it's it's funny that, you know, all these things are coming together right now. So here's the story. Here's the story. And um, I'm going to use this as an illustration to try to explain um, Rabbi Chaim Shmuel Levitz's words, um, of Shah. So, so, I don't know if you're familiar with the term blue book, but in universities, they have these like little kind of paper, you know, pamphlets with a blue cover, and they're called blue books, and you write your final exam in them, okay? So, and then you hand it in afterwards. And so the proctor, uh, the person overseeing uh, the taking of the final exam, told the students, um, when I say pencils down, everyone has to you know, drop your pencils and turn in your blue books. And if you don't, then I am not accepting your blue book, meaning to say that it's an automatic fail. Okay, so he made it very, very clear. So they reach the time at the end of the exam, and the proctor says, pencils down. And people drop their pencils and 
gave in their blue books, except for one person. And this one person continues to write furiously, furiously, keeps on writing, and the person says again, pencils down, and he continues to write furiously until he finishes. And then he stands up with his blue book, his final exam, and he goes to hand it in. And the proctor says, I, I made it very clear. I'm not accepting your exam. And the person says, do you know who I am? And the proctor says, I don't care who you are. He said, you, you don't know who I am? And the proctor says, I told you, I don't care. And the person takes his blue book. There's a stack of blue books. He puts it in the middle of the stack, then takes the stack and throws it up in the air. They all go all over the place and he runs out of the room. <laughs> and so he was able he was able to get his exam accepted even though he himself was not worthy. Now, Rabbi Fran used that story to illustrate something very important, and I think this is what Rabbi Chaim Shmuel Levitz is saying, to, to my understanding. You see, there's a certain protection, a certain level of blessing that comes when you're part of a community that doesn't come to an individual alone. This is the greatness of dominating in a minion and, and just being part of a community in general, which is that an individual has their strengths, but an individual also has their shortcomings. And the shortcomings of the individual are such that sometimes it blocks the individual from rising higher. But the community, Klal Yisrael, the, the Jewish people themselves as a construct, this idea of the nation of Israel, is this special entity. And it, you can see, all you have to do is, you know, I was telling my children these stories last night, and, and you know, I was, I was telling them why I love studying Jewish history so much, because you see the hand of God. You see God at work in Jewish history. And... I believe it's Rav Yonasan Ibishitz said that regarding the, the, the Haggadah, when we you know go over all the miracles, Pesach night at the Seder, of, of, of leaving Egypt, he says, the fact that we're saying the Haggadah today, this was approximately the 1700s, is greater than all of the miracles that we're reading about in the Haggadah. Because the continual existence of the Jewish people is completely supernatural. If, if, you, if you want to see the hand of God as it works through history, study the history of the Jewish people. So that's this idea. If you can join the Jewish people, if you can be part of this construct, then you, you, there's a, a, a special hashgacha, a special level of providence that comes. And, and so I think that that's what Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz was, was saying with, with, with these words. Why was he not saved? 
And by the way, this person was, I'm sure, I mean, the most righteous individual. I'm, I'm, I'm sure he, that he was. Uh, this is nothing against the person, God forbid. I'm sure he was a tzaddik in his own right. Why was he not saved? Because he remained alone and was not part of the yeshiva. In other words, the yeshiva, the community itself, allowed him to go beyond whatever his personal mazel was. And um, and this is the blessing that we that 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 we all receive if if we can make ourselves um, increasingly part of the community and increasingly um, in service of and and. And to the extent that we can, uh, you know, necessary to the community. I mean, no one's necessary, but but to the extent that that things can flow through you, then then just by dint you become necessary. But but um, but but the idea is just attaching yourself to the community. That 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 is the point. That is the point I'm making. And I'll tell you, um, Rabbi um, Biederman Schlita, uh, I hope I get the details right to this. It, it was a piece that was going around the internet. He's, he's you know, fabulous in so many ways, uh, such a great Torah teacher, but, but also a great storyteller. And, um, and, and he said that there was this hotel that Rav Israel Salanter gave this mushal, okay, that there's this hotel wildly expensive hotel, the most expensive hotel in the world. And, you know, Rabbi Israel Salanter was telling this story how many years ago, you know, 150, 200 years ago, something like this. Anyway, he says that there's a hotel that it costs to stay one night, $24,000 a night. (laughs) All right, just... And this one Jew, like, he's like, okay, well... I'll stay a night, you know. So he's, he walks in, he sees another Jew there. And he's like fascinated with this other guy who was able to afford this hotel. And he wants to know, how many minutes, how many minutes have you stayed in the hotel? And the person answers back, I live here. And he says, what? He says, not only do I live here, but they pay me. He says, they pay you to live here? How how did you work that out? This is unbelievable. He And he answers back, he says, because I'm the manager. So, Rav Israel Salander says, that hotel, that's this world. This world is very expensive. We're not just talking about money, right? Our souls are at stake. Our eternity is on the line. So, but if you make yourself the manager, if you make yourself a worker within within the hotel, within this world, if if you try to be of service to each other, to everyone, then not only do you get to live in the hotel, but they even pay you to be in the hotel. You even get blessings. Not only do you get the privilege of being part of this 
magnificent world. But you get blessings on top of that. But we have to see ourselves as workers, which is which is the truth of our existence anyway, right? The first thing it says, you know, I try to make this point all of the time because people don't know this. Before we ate from the tree of knowledge, here's what everyone thinks. The Garden of Eden was this cosmic oasis, and we blew it. We had the perfect eternal vacation, and we blew it. This is what everybody thinks, but it's not what the Torah says. It's in black and white. All you have to do is open it up and read. It says, this is before we ate from the tree of knowledge. Before we ate, when things were supposedly good, okay? It says that God made us to work and guard the garden. (laughs) Do you understand? From the very get-go, this was a work enterprise, Existence itself. We're here to accomplish something. We're here to be partners with God. That's why God made us to finish the world, to complete the world, to perfect the world. So the problem is, is that all of contemporary society wants to get out of work. The the highest ideal is to, you know, like like among college students, like like the hippest thing in the world is to be a college dropout, right? Because you've got a startup or something like that. So, or to not have to work anymore, right? But th- this is, it's not correct. Now, you don't want to work at your job and you've got enough money to be able to pursue helping people in other ways, creative ways on your own, that's fantastic. But as long as you have that, that, that giving mentality, that, that you're here to continue to give no matter what, and if you've been blessed with fabulous resources, all the better. I mean, look at Bill Gates. Bill Gates is unbelievable. He, he's just constantly f- trying to figure out how can he give away more and more of his billions of dollars to, to, to the best of his understanding, try to get rid of things like malaria and, and all sorts of infectious disease and try to improve the world. I mean, that's, that's a great case. And, and you know, I mean, I, I haven't had this problem yet. <laughs> but when you have billions of dollars, it's, you actually have to be like, it takes like hard mental work to figure out how to spend that money productively to, to help people. You know, it's, it's, it's not obvious. And then you've got to innovate things as well. But that's all of us. All of us at our level, whatever it is. And sometimes that's just like Rabbi Biederman says, just saying hello and smiling to someone. It doesn't have to be, there's zero correlation, no connection between this thought that I've just told you and having a dime in the bank. It's just a mentality. It's just, oh, now I'm next to this person. I can smile. I can say hello. I can say, hey, you look great. You know, what's going on? But that's how we become, quote unquote, you know, in this story, the managers, right? Very important. Very important. Okay. Well, 
That concludes the Jewish history portion of this talk. And now let's get to a little Torah study. It's all been Torah study, but, you know, one of my, one of my favorite stories, actually, just as a transition. Um, well, isn't it appropriate that it's from the Vorka Rebbe? So the reason is, the, the Vorka Rebbe was one of the great Hasidic masters, and, and, and he was uh, famously best friends with the, with the Katska Rebbe. And the Vorka Rebbe's great-grandson was the Umshin of a Rebbe, this one that we've been talking about today, the Umshin of a Rebbe. So he comes from the Vorka Rebbe. Anyway, the, the, the first Vorka Rebbe, Rabbi Yitzchak, had a son known as the Silent Rebbe. It was Reb Mendele, okay? And, and he was famous for not talking at all. And Reb Shlomo once told the story that at, uh, that he would have Fabrengans. He was a Rebbe, but he didn't speak. And at his Fabrengans, you know, which would be, you know, a long table with the Hasidim, and they would sing and say over Divrei Torah and make a and, you know, that at the Fabrengans, he would sit at the head of the table, and then he would just look at another Hasid, just look him in the eyes, and just go. And, and the Hasidim would break down in tears, like... What more needed to be said? Just that simple look like, what are you doing with your life? What are you doing? Are you working? What are you doing? How hard are you trying? I mean, every trenchant thought was just conveyed with a look. Anyway, with that in mind, someone once saw the the Vorka Rebbe, uh, Reb Mendel Vorka, the silent Rebbe, talking at length with an old woman on the street. And they came up to him afterwards and they said, you know, I thought you're so famous for not talking. Here, I see you're chatting away with this old woman. And he said, you know something? She really needed someone to talk to at that moment. And he said, every word that I said was divritor. Meaning they could have been talking about whatever, the weather, whatever. But he understood that she needed companionship at that point, and that every word he was saying was a devartor for that reason. So, so anyway, we 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 read about we read about the fruits, <clears throat> the first fruits, the bekurim, that we brought to the base of Migdash. And we're always reading about this before Rosh Hashanah. And again, um, just a reminder, all of these Parshas that we're reading in Elul, um, leading up to Rosh Hashanah, are all about Rosh Hashanah. Okay, that's how the rabbis understand them. And so what is this idea of the first fruits, bringing the first fruits? And... uh, and putting them in a basket and bringing them to Rosh Hashanah, or rather bringing them to the base of Migdash. 
How does it relate to Rosh Hashanah? So I, I think I say this this idea every year. I'm going to tell you something new in a second, but I like it so much. Let's just review it, okay? So, so uh, the Imre Noam, the Jikover Rebbe, that was the the grandson of the Ropshitzer Rebbe. Okay, the Ropshitzer was like the the number one man of the Chos of Lublin, the Seer of Lublin. So the Jikover Rebbe, Reb Shlomo described him as a supercomputer before there were computers. Okay, and he was an expert in gematria. And to me, this is one of the all time all time greatest gematrias. You ready? Rosh Hashanah is Gematria Beis HaMikdash. You hear that? Rosh Hashanah, ex- the exact number. Rosh Hashanah is Gematria Beis HaMikdash. So when it says you take all your first fruits and you put them in a basket and you take it to the Beis HaMikdash, so the way I understand that is, you know, one of the things, one of the levels of preparation that you should do before entering Rosh Hashanah is think about all the good things you did this year. Take all the fruits from this year, the first fruits, so to speak, this year, and put them in a basket and bring them to the base of Nigdash. Well, base of Nigdash is Rosh Hashanah. Bring all these wonderful things you did to Rosh Hashanah, to the davening. And you know, there's still time to fill your basket with schusim, with merits, with fruit, to bring to Rosh Hashanah. Okay. So... So there's a there's a Rashi. It's actually the first Rashi, and the first pasuk in the Torah, on Breshis. Breshis is be Breshis, um, which can be translated as for the sake of the first. So Rashi famously says that this word Breshis, first, is used regarding three things: the Jewish people, Amalek. And um, Bikurim, the first fruits. And seen in that context, it, it means that, that for the sake of the Jewish people bringing the first fruits to the base of Migdash, the entire world was created. Bereshis, for the sake of the first fruits. Now, every rabbi in history is like, trying to figure out what this means. <laughs> because they're like, okay, it's a good mitzvah. <laughs> no, one is, no one is bashing this mitzvah. But for the sake of this, the entire universe was created? Really? Like, that's a little hard to understand. Uh, very hard to understand. Okay. So, Rav Hummer in the Eretz Fee, gives an explanation and I think it's a very amazing explanation. And I'm going to throw in how, how I understand it, because I, I think I'm including an idea or two of my own in this. So, so it's a little combo platter here. <laughs> but you should know that he was a, a Sokachov or a Chassid. And um, he, he's often quoting the Sokachov Rebbe. And by the way, also the Kutzka Rebbe, all over, all over the Eretz so the Sokachova Rebbe, um, of course, was the, the grandson of, of the Kutzka Rebbe, and a very, very big Rebbe. He says the following. You see, we have this idea, we talked about it a few weeks ago. Uh, it's called Nahama de Kasufa. 
which is Aramaic for the bread of shame. This idea, the bread of shame, is is one of the ways that we understand why the world itself was created. The idea is that our souls existed before the world was created, and that our souls were sort of basking in this heavenly light, but we didn't do anything to deserve this awesome merit, this often reward, this, this awesome bliss. And so, as such, there was something lacking in our ability to accept it, because we hadn't done anything to earn it. Now, I had this question, and if you thought about it a little bit, you'd probably come up with the same question, which is, and and by the way, let me just get to the point here, that's one of the reasons why God created the entire world, so that we could earn this reward that we were going to get, and then we could experience this divine bliss in, in a complete perfect way, because we'll know that we actually earned it. Okay, so so here's the question. Why couldn't God have created us in a way, since God can do anything, that we didn't experience shame for accepting this free gift? <laughs> in other words, you can, you can avoid the entire creation of the universe. All you have to do is create us in a way that our souls can receive this level of reward and not feel bad about not having done anything for it. Very simple. Except, God had something else in mind, which is that he wanted, you see, what is the most God-like thing? And um, one answer, certainly, or maybe the answer, perhaps, I don't know, but certainly one answer is that God is the ultimate giver. And you see, if he just created us to be the perfect receivers, we would not have really been created in his image. God sought to give us the ultimate blessing by making us God-like as well. But for us to be God-like as well, we have to become givers like God. And if God has just sort of like made us into the perfect receivers, then God hasn't given us the ultimate good, which is to make us like him, truly like him. And so that's the concept of Nahama de Kasufa, the bread of shame, that we are able to come down into this world and not just earn our reward, but to become givers, like we talked about, being the manager of the hotel, to become givers to each other. That's, that's, that's the ultimate. Okay. So the Sokachava Rebbe says it like this. And he uses these words, Nahama de Kasufa, the bread of shame. He says that while our soul existed before the world was created, we weren't able to earn our reward. Now, very, very interestingly, how does he define earning your reward? So he, he puts it like this, overcoming taivas. We weren't able to want something that wasn't right for us 
were right for us in the moment, let's say, and and to forego it in order to serve God. So he's he's really, I mean, we really have like here like laser surgery right now on a, on a soul level. He's really pinpointing an aspect of divine service which is absolutely essential. This idea of wanting something that's not right for us, let's say in the moment, and being able to forego it as a service to God. Okay. Now, how does this connect to the first fruits? Now, Rob Frommer didn't make this explicit, but, you know, a lot of times, so this is why I say I'm adding, but a lot of times I think that, you know, the reason why he's not mentioning it is not because it was my idea, it's just because it was so obvious it wasn't worth mentioning. <laughs> okay, so, so I hesitate to call it my idea because I think that it's like saying, oh yeah, uh, don't forget your car keys. Uh, dude, they're in my pocket. Okay, hey, but that was my idea, right? No, 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 I know you need the keys for the car. I, I knew that before you said it. So I, with that preface, let me tell you my great idea, okay? But I, I think this is what the Sokachover is saying and what Rav Frimmer is saying anyway, okay? Well, when you think about fruit and first fruit, what do you think about? Where does your mind go? So, if it doesn't go here already, can I suggest perhaps where it should go? It should go to the Eitzadas, to the very first fruit, right? Now, what is the mitzvah of Bekorim, of the first fruits? You give it to God, right? What did we do with the first fruit? Ah, we took it for ourselves. Isn't that interesting? Do you see how deep this idea of the first fruit grows? And what did the Sokachova Rebbe say? The idea that you want something that's not right for you, and I'm adding yet, because a lot of the things that we want are truly right for us. It's just not the moment yet. So let me give you an example. It says that the Eitz Hadas, this fruit that we were told, like the one fruit we're told, don't eat that fruit, that the, that the Eitz Hadas was going to be permitted to us. But first we had to eat from the Eitz Hachayim, from the Tree of Life. And then probably over Shabbos or something like this, the Eitz Hadas would have been permitted to us, okay? But nonetheless, the idea is we desired that first fruit. And the idea is that if, if we don't have permission to do that activity, then we, we humble ourselves. Now, this idea of humbling yourself is integral to an understanding of the first fruit. Now, listen to this detail, because when you hear it, 
it's so phenomenal and it completely ties into what we've been discussing right now. Did you know when you brought a korban, when you brought an offering, and I'm talking about an animal offering, okay? Or a korban mincha or something like this, right? Excuse me. You would you would basically do this confession where you would, uh, you know, say over whatever it is that, that you had done wrong, right? By mistake. And the coin, the, the priest would take take your Corbin and he would ascend this ramp. And by the way, I want to give you a wild visual right now because this just came to me or I just understood it this week for the first time. And I'm telling you, this is a stunning visual. You, you, you have to imagine this, okay? Because I've never really heard anyone make this point before. I guess everyone thinks it's obvious, but no one ever told me. This ramp, there was a ramp that led up to the Mizbeach, the altar, where the offerings were put. Do you know that the Mizbeach was something like two stories above ground? You know, it was something like, and this isn't the exact number, but the Mizbeach was something like 25 feet up in the air. Now, can you imagine you're standing in the middle of the courtyard and there's this altar essentially floating in the middle of the air. Now, it's not floating. It was attached to a building, but it was a pretty narrow construct. But I'm just talking about the way it must have looked and the way you must have experienced it. It was all the way up, all the way up, going up into the sky almost. In the middle of this courtyard, and there was this heavenly music playing. It says that the Levium were playing songs that were pinpointed, like they were like heavenly, heavenly DJs, so to speak, that were playing like the exact melodies to like, you know, give you this ecstatic experience. And you're looking at your Corbin all the way up there. Okay, so so with this in mind, that was the normal experience. But there's an extra detail that would happen with your first fruit, okay? That you wouldn't do by a normal offering. And you're ready for this? You would bow down to the ground. And it says it right, right in the Chumash itself. You would bow all the way down to the ground after you gave your fruit to the Kohen. And the fruit, by the way, didn't go on the altar. That that was eaten. Okay. So, so let's, let's tie that into what we've been saying up until now. This idea of Bekurim, this idea that Hashem goes first and and you bow down to the ground. You you acknowledge what this relationship is. That 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 core principle was worth creating the entire world for. Because when a person does that, they're putting the entire world in harmony. And um, and in it's 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 an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. And if you think about it, if you just take 10 steps back from your own life, how could it be otherwise? Why should it be otherwise? 
You know, one of the, the, the great amazing things about America um, is, is its embrace of individuality. And it's fantastic. It's, it's just empowered the individual to fantastic heights. Um, but one of the downsides of that is thinking that each one of us is actually the one who's running the world. And how did that ever become possible, that we would ever think such a thought? Because it's so absurd, if you, if you think about it. It's absurd. We didn't create the universe. We didn't create ourselves. Why would I think that I'm running the world? It makes no sense whatsoever. Um, so, so now we get to the second step here. Because the Medrash ties offering the Bikurim, the first fruits, which is this bowing down, which is this idea of, no, Hashem's will comes before my will, right? Like thinking of eating from the Eitz Hadas, right? Um, it ties in with tefillah, with prayer itself. Now, Rav Frimer says something amazing. He defines all of tefillah, right? Like any, te- he says the ikr of tefillah. Now you hear ikr means essence. You see a sentence that says the ikr of tefillah. You got to sit up straight. You're about to hear something amazing. He says the ikr of tefillah, and I'm going to explain these words in a second, means that th- this is every time you get ready to pray, to include yourself into Hashem. That's what he says. To include yourself into Hashem. And what, so you say, wait a second, that's the essence of prayer, to include myself in Hashem? Like, uh, I don't understand what that means. Okay, let me try my best to explain it. I would add this word, to re-include yourself into Hashem. (laughs) You see, the problem is, and this happened when we ate from the tree of knowledge, which is why the Medrash is likening tefillah and bringing Bikurim, why it's, it's connecting these two ideas, is when we ate from the tree of knowledge, we thought in the spiritual delusion that, we, that resulted that we were independent entities from God. And you know, that's why, um, mystically speaking, a lot of people refer to this world as the world of separation. Nothing is separate from God. But in we, we, we imagine that we are separate from God. And, and there's a disconnect. And where did that disconnect happen? When the mind and the heart became separated which is one of the legacies of eating from the tree of knowledge. We knew, but we no longer felt. We became disconnected from ourselves. And once we became disconnected from ourselves, we became disconnected or imagined that we were disconnected from God. We imagined that there could be such a thing as a place where God isn't. And so now when you understand these phenomenal depths, you can see what Rav Frimer is telling us in just a few words, 
that the essence of tefillah, the essence of prayer, is at that moment you get to re-include yourself into God because you have to constantly remind yourself because the brain is hardwired the other way. You have to constantly remind yourself that all that exists is God and that you're included within it. And with that in mind, they say, I'm going to tell you a halacha right now, and we're going to wrap it up, okay? The halacha is, if you're saying Shmona Esrei, you know, the, the main part of the prayer service, right? That's the silent prayer, you know, the Amida, you know, it's called all these different things. And you don't have kavana. If you don't, if you don't concentrate for the first of those prayers, which ends with Magain Avraham, then you have to go back. They, they say that the words are so powerful that if you don't have any kavana, any attention span, while you recite the rest of this prayer, it's all good because the, the words themselves are so strong. But, but every, every train needs a locomotive, right? Needs the engine at the front. And the engine at the front are these words, Baruch Hashem, Magen Avraham. You need that. So the shield, it means the shield of Avraham. So I want to interpret it in the following way, based on what we've just learned. What does it mean, the shield of Avraham? That means you are re-including yourself within the divine. That's what the shield is. You're entering, you're re-entering into the shield and you understand that you exist within the divine. That's the shield of Avraham. And when you have kavana for that, then you've met the, 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 the bar of what concentration actually is, what tefillah actually is, what prayer actually is. Okay, so we're going to end, but, but, but let's just review. If you want to see God working, if you want to see the existence of God, look at, look at the survival of the Jewish people. And, and we just told a few stories of that. And if you, if you want to ensure success, blessing for yourself, for your family, for your friends, for your community, be part of the community. Because this construct called Israel is everlasting. And if you can include yourself amidst it, then you transcend your own personal limitations and even the most righteous among us have personal limitations. That's putting your exam in the paper and throwing it up in the air. If you're in, you're in. Right? And that's this idea that on an individual level as well, when we pray, we have to re-include ourselves within God. And tefillah, prayer, is the ultimate time to be able to exist in, in, in that reality. And if you want to, on a daily basis, be able to keep this mitzvah, at least on a spiritual level, of bringing the first fruits, then before you eat, before you eat, make a blessing. Make a blessing. Because when you make that blessing before you eat, what you're doing is you're saying, God, everything belongs to you. It's all yours. And now you're able to step in. And, and that's, how, 
that blessing is the bowing down of bringing of bringing the bakur. And you can do that. You can do that. And if you want to go a step further, even, there's a, a custom, I, I haven't started doing this, but I would like to start doing this, is to say, um, uh, it's the 23rd Psalm. Okay, that's, um, you know, Hashem, you're my shepherd, right? You lead me. That's, that's it's, it's, it's short. And, and a lot of holy people, you know, the Ari talked about doing this as a custom before eating. That it's, that, that, that if you understand that God is leading, and Rav Rumer brings this also, that, that God is leading you, that, that is the consciousness of, 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 of that idea of, of putting Hashem first. And then you eat. Okay. Uh, have a great week. Have a great week. And, uh, Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.